Good afternoon. Welcome to the weekly edition of The Wrap. I'm Laura Leslie, WRL Capital Bureau Chief. And I'm Travis Fain, one of WRL's state government reporters. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's election time. You can feel the energy coming up. But today, all the talk today seems to be about the Wolf Speed deal, which I understand is the biggest deal, uh, biggest economic incentives deal and investment in North Carolina history. Yeah, and and I mean five billion dollars that's going to be uh, invested in is it Chatham County I believe to it is Chatham County it's the cam site it's over by Randolph County build a new semiconductor factory they're going to they're going to make the the silicon carbide which is so key to the semiconductor industry I, I learned today that already the largest facility in the world according to Wolf Speed's CEO is in Durham and this I think will have ten times the capacity uh, so this is another mega mega deal. Uh, and North Carolina kind of on a roll here with this sort of deal. You know, the, the, these these chips are used in all sorts of things, but one of them is electric vehicles. And we've really increased uh, our footprint as far as electric vehicles, electric batteries with, with recent announcements. We're becoming a hub for that sort of thing. You have to wonder how much of this has to do with the VinFast announcement and the Toyota announcement. Definitely. It's all part of the same world. And I mean, also remember that the CHIPS bill recently passed at the federal level, passed right. Congress uh, not too long ago. Um, and that has got a bunch of money. And I asked Greg Lowe, who's Wolf Speed CEO today, you know, does this deal, does this Wolf Speed uh, semiconductor plant deal happen without the CHIPS Act? Uh, and he said, well, kind of both. And I don't really know exactly what that means, but I think what it means is, you know, he said, we're moving forward here before the money from the CHIPS Act flows. But they absolutely expect to get money from that bill. I think it's upward of $50 billion. Uh, in, in and that was the bill to invest in infrastructure to produce more chips in the U.S., right? Because we have found ourselves over a barrel um, with the chip shortages worldwide um, that are going on right now. Yeah, that were exposed by the pandemic and are part of the reason that a used car or, or some new cars are so expensive right now. I, I mean, and remember, that's the bill where it passed the Senate with Republican support, including uh, Senators Tillis and Burr, but every North Carolina Republican in the House voted against it. Uh, this was the bill that, that that moved forward after, you know, Senator Manchin announced uh, a, a deal on another bill that kind of uh, mm -hmm. surprised Republicans, you know, and, and they didn't like, and that led to, to, to some switching of votes. I, you know, that's what people speculate. Uh, Ted Budd, uh, Congressman Ted Budd, who voted against it and, of course, is running for the United States Senate, a Republican. He said that uh, today that he voted against that CHIPS Act because there were some – basically, he says that Democrats pulled some guardrails out from an original part of the bill that would allow taxpayer money to be invested in shifting manufacturing to facilities in China. He, he was for the bill uh, back in January earlier this year. And then he says uh, the bill was altered uh, before uh, the, the final vote. Of course, again, at any rate, you know, Ted, at any rate, Ted Budd and money. Tom Tillis voted for the bill as it so. Yeah. Um, so we don't know. Do we know when the construction is supposed to start? Because they're talking like 1,800 jobs. It's 1,800 jobs and it's a ramp up. I don't have the exact dates, uh, but I mean, it's huge. It's huge. And, and you know, once again, a very bipartisan announcement at the governor's mansion on this today. You know, you had the governor. You had Speaker of the House Tim Moore, who, by the way, called the CHIPS Act absolutely transformational. So he was very um, complimentary of the CHIPS Act. Speaker of the House Tim Moore was today. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was everybody was all smiles. Well, they won't be in a couple of months <laughs> because it is now election season. And um, today is the day that absentee ballots start going out. 
So um, I've been working on a story today to try to see, you know, now that the pandemic is largely in the rearview mirror, we'll say, knock on wood, don't jinx it. Um, you know, are people still voting by mail or interested in voting by mail? Um, and the answer is at least on the first day in terms of the kind of um, requests that they've had come in, they are still more interested in voting by mail than they were in 2018. <clears throat> so some people who voted by mail during the pandemic decided they want to keep doing it this way. Um, but the vast, but, but basically we're looking at it, 2020 was like 13 times higher. Right, um, right. You know, so a lot more people were doing it by mail in 2020. Um, interesting to wonder what this is going to do in terms of, you know, the polls, lines at the polls. Um, but, you know, Gary Sims with Wake County Board of Elections told me, he says, you know, he feels like everybody he's talking to is excited to vote in person. And that doesn't start until I think October 20th. I could be a day or two off on that, but I think that's right. So, um, but anyway, um, right now they're just sending out the absentee by mails and they're also um, opening up the portal that the overseas voters use, um, you know, and the um, and blind voters can use as well uh, to vote online. So, um, so it's, it's officially election time. It seems so early, but yes, here it is. Um, yeah, and North Carolina, if I remember correctly, earliest in the country uh, to, to send out absentee ballots or at least very close to it. One I think of the a lot of that is because of our large military presence because they have to get a lot of them out anyway. Yeah. Um, to everybody, to everybody overseas. Right, right. The federal government requires that. And one of the things people will be voting on is control of the General Assembly. And I, I was at the Wolf Speed announcement today, so I had a chance to ask the governor and ask the speaker, uh, Democrat and Republican, respectively. You know, you guys get up here and you make these big economic announcements, and everybody loves each other. Is that not a really strong argument for the power of divided government? You know, as opposed to. Uh, Democrats controlling the General Assembly and the governor's office, not going to happen, or Republicans getting some sort of supermajority uh, and thus being able to overturn the governor's veto, which is more likely. And the, the governor said yes. He thinks that, quote, that balance that we have right now is important to economic development. He did stop short, I noticed, though, of praising GOP tax policies, uh, which have something to do with economic development, obviously. He has fought a lot of the corporate tax breaks uh, over the recent years. Uh, so, so he wouldn't quite bring himself to praise uh, Republicans on that. Uh, Speaker of the House Moore said, yeah, you can make the argument that divided government is good, but didn't sound like Tim Moore was making that argument. He wants that supermajority, says they always strive for bipartisanship, particularly in economic development issues. Um, but, you know, I just, it, I think that argument is there, and it's a strong one that the checks and balances that divided government brings us, uh, in this case, between the two parties, have something to do with the recent rounds of economic success in this in this state. Well, to look at it from another angle, though, um, there are a lot of folks in the legislature who would like to, to see less divided government, at least in, in terms of redistricting. And I am referring, of course, to Moore v. Harper, uh, the case that's supposed to come before the Supreme Court this year, in which our lawmakers are making the independent state legislature theory argument, which is that basically the elections clause in the US Constitution gives the power to set the time, manner, and, and time, place, and manner of elections, sorry, federal elections, uh, to state legislatures and does not say state judiciaries and state governments, and therefore state judiciaries should not have the power to review or to rewrite or overturn laws that state legislators make uh, regarding at least federal elections, even if they even if the court thinks that they violate the Constitution. Now, this got some attention this week when um, the Conference of Chief Justices actually weighed in on this. This is a group of all 50 bipartisan, you know, um, Chief Justices from the, all the states. Um, 
and they they don't weigh in on a lot of things. Um, you know, I think they filed maybe seven or eight briefs in the last 20 years, you know, uh, but they did file on this one. Uh, they said basically that this would strip a lot of the power of state courts and they think it would also upset the balance of government. And so they're strongly opposed to lawmakers arguments uh, in that case. Of course, that joins, that's like one of like 18 or 19 or 20 amicus briefs that are out there. Um, and a lot of those briefs are in favor of the arguments. They're coming from um, groups like the America First folks, that's the you know former President Trump supporters. Um, a lot of the right-wing conservative think tanks are also weighing in on this. So, um, so right now, I would say, in terms of the the ballot, the running balance, you know, you get a lot more briefs in favor of the arguments than against it. But that was an interesting, an interesting entree into that case. Um, I still don't know if there's been a date set. I can't find one. I don't know. I, I think there is some thought that arguments will be held in that case before the end of the year, but I, I don't know exactly when the Supreme Court is, you know, its it, its own entity that is for sure uh i speaking of redistricting I, we noticed uh, and look we could we could do entire raps about who's spending money where in what races but i did want to note that the ndrc which is former attorney general eric holder's group that is it the national democratic redistricting committee something like that that would they make put, sense they push for redistricting for reform that will help democrats that will help democrats yeah they're, they're jumping into a bunch of north carolina races i saw a number of state legislative candidates uh, obviously democrats uh on that list uh the money's starting to flow uh yeah it, well it, and it, starting it, big time because we also heard today that emily's list is investing 2.7 million right now uh in an ad running statewide for beasley and this is um this is an ad that touts her support for abortion access, um, um, I think, at least if, if I read that correctly. But no, it's going to be in, in all six major markets. They're talking about broadcast, satellite, cable. I mean, it's, it's a serious buy, you know, and it's a serious buy, especially for so early in the cycle. You know, we're just coming out of Labor Day. This is just about the time that people start paying attention to elections. So, you know, um, that they, they join a long list of uh, third party groups that have said that they will target North Carolina. That includes Planned Parenthood and the other side of that one, Susan B. Anthony list. We got Club for Growth that's expecting to step in for um, a couple of different candidates here uh, in North Carolina. So, uh, it'll you know, it, it's funny. It used to be, Travis, that you and I could look at what people were doing in terms of fundraising and actually sort of get some juice out of that in terms of, you know, who's leading, who's who's likely to, to, to be dominant in this race. Outside money has just like so completely dwarfed um, what candidates make anymore that it's really difficult to know, you know, exactly how much pull somebody's going to have when it comes down to, you know, down to election day and those weeks right before it. Um, especially like we're hearing, I think this week that, or last week that um, the, um, I think it's RSCC is having some trouble, or RSLC having some trouble raising money because of some disagreement between, I think, Peter Thiel and Mitch McConnell. So there's other groups that are kind of coming in to fill in some of the gaps um, that they may be facing and as they come into this fall. So, um, you know, we have a lot of promises. We'll have to see who actually materializes in the state, who actually buys the ads. But was just, I was pretty surprised to see that big Emily's list by today. Yeah. And I mean, you and I were talking before we hit record here. We both think abortion, number one issue in these elections, hands down. Uh, and at least among know, women voters and women make up 54 percent of the electorate. So, right. Yeah. Right. Nope. Yeah, it'll be it'll be it's it's interesting. You know, there's a lot of talk. We we've, we've covered this too. Um, here, Brian Anderson, I think, had a story about how you know a lot of the Republicans here are starting to scrub their websites. Um, you know, of their you know, their sort of positions on both um, abortion and same sex marriage. 
um, and sort of trying to pivot toward inflation and a referendum on Biden and the economy, uh, trying to make that center stage. And, and for a lot of voters, that will be the number one issue. I'm not, I'm not saying it won't. But I do think that what we've seen in Kansas and in some of the other states where we've seen special elections and Democrats overperforming, um, a lot of times you know, their main message has been on abortion and it does not seem to have failed them. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, Senator Richard Burr mentioned briefly the FBI. Y'all remember that Senator Burr, he seemed to do real well in the stock market right around the, the beginning of the pandemic, even though he was kind of telling people publicly, oh, it'd be all right. But he was dumping stocks while, while he was doing that. And uh, the LA Times, which has done a lot of good work on this, uh, pushed to have the affidavit in what was ultimately an FBI investigation that resulted in no charges. I want to be clear. The FBI did not charge this man. Um, but so the affidavit that was part of that case came out this week or late last week. They said he made more than 164000 in, quote, well-timed stock sales early in the pandemic. He dumped uh, in his portfolio like 83% of equities down to 3%. He avoided something like $87,000 in losses. His wife sold off a bunch of stuff too. His brother-in-law sold off a bunch of stuff. Right. After a call with Senator Burr, uh, he also had hip replacement surgery recently. Uh, that That's separate, except it involves Richard Burr. So we do wish him a uh, speedy recovery on that. Uh, I don't, maybe that's the last we hear of this. You know, at one point there was an SEC inquiry into Senator Burr's. As far as we know, there still is. Yeah. So yeah. Is, yeah, I mean, that's I mean, as recently as last year, they were active because they were trying to subpoena the brother-in-law who um, was delaying, um, you know, uh, coming in to testify. So I don't know what the status of that that is, but that one appears to still be open as best I can tell. But yeah, the FBI, at least we were informed by Senator Burr, uh, the FBI informed him that the case was closed and no charges were filed. And I don't think any uh, I don't think there's ever any pronouncement on the case um, coming from the Senate Ethics Committee either. Or if there were if there was, I must have missed it. So and I don't remember. Uh, but just speaking of people uh, in elected office being accused or sort of accused of crimes, uh, former State Representative Derwin Montgomery pled not guilty uh, this week. This is according to the Winston-Salem Journal in federal court. He is accused of embezzling $26,000 from the Bethesda Center for the Homeless, where he was executive director, including a trip to Cancun uh, that they say, federal prosecutors say he uh, paid for himself. So uh, he pleaded not guilty this week. And that's, again, former State Representative Derwin Montgomery. Was he from Forsyth or Green or Guilford County. I, he was Winston-Salem, I, I believe. Yeah, he was sure. in the House briefly uh, and is not now. Yeah, he was appointed Speaks to replace someone. So I'm sorry, it doesn't come to me because it was back in a couple of years ago. But um, but yeah, so he did not run again. So uh, there's somebody else in his seat right now. But uh, yeah, it was interesting. Um, you know, he said, he told his congregation, he's a preacher. He told his congregation that, you know, that not all the facts were out yet. Um, and that, you know, he's working through some issues and talking to the church elders. So I guess we'll wait and see, you know, what turns up in court, obviously. Speaking of former lawmakers, uh, Senator Bob Steinberg, uh, now former Senator Bob Steinberg, who lost his primary out uh, near the coast, uh, he has resigned and is heading into lobbying. He's discussing contracts to represent Camden County. Uh, in the general assembly, not represent them, but lobby for them in general assembly. Elizabeth City, too, thirty grand, thirty-six thousand dollars a year. These contracts, each one uh, individually, would be according to the Daily Advance in Elizabeth City. Uh, he's also saying, "Look, I'm not doing a one-year contract." Some some local leaders had asked him for a one-year contract. He wants to do two years because that's how long 
legislative sessions uh, run. So wasting no time uh, negotiating those. And I was surprised, Laura. I, I, I thought, well, how many counties actually have their own lobbyist? And it's quite a few. I mean, I, I, I didn't fully add them up, but it's a bunch. Well, very few of them. I mean, okay, the big counties definitely do. I think the smaller counties keep somebody on retainer, you know, if something comes up. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely something to be said for having somebody to argue the case for your county specifically. Now, obviously, that's the sort of thing that you would want your lawmaker to do, right? Your delegation to do. Um, but you know, there's you know, there's something to be said for having somebody to help them lobby their fellow lawmakers to get more resources for your place. So, um, so that, I think that's it is interesting that um, that this is sort of developed so quickly. Usually, people sort of wait through the cooling off period before they start making moves like this because um, they've got a six month cooling off period. Uh, but obviously, a former Senator Steinberg is not. Yeah, and he can. My understanding is he can negotiate these contracts now. He just can't lobby until the cooling off. Period. Yeah, legally you can. You just don't hear about people doing that very often. Right. Um, in the meantime, also we wanted to mention um, something that um, will be probably surprised to a lot of people who got the student loan forgiveness. Um, that is, you, you all remember, you know, there's a there's ten thousand dollars or up to twenty thousand dollars, depending on you know what your income was, of student loan forgiveness that's coming your way. Well, in North Carolina, we decoupled from the federal tax code. So because of that, um, this will be considered income and you will have to pay state income tax on the forgiven loan amount. You wouldn't have to pay it federal tax, but you will have to pay state tax. And I understand you talked to uh, Speaker Moore about that, didn't you? Yeah, I talked to Speaker Moore uh, today and he said, you know, we haven't even talked about that. He said he generally likes to couple with federal tax policy just to simplify things. But as far as whether or not the state will ultimately waive that the, the 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 tax state income tax on that says they haven't really discussed it and i'm not entirely sure look it, it, a lot of this depends on how the department of education uh, arranges this you know how they set it up do, do, does does the forgiveness happen all at once does it happen over a number of tax years does it happen in the 2022 tax year does it happen in the 2023 tax year when the legislature will be in session, will be forced to be, you know, at least deal with this question in some way. I asked the U.S. Department of Education about that a week ago. They were like, you know, yeah, they didn't say we don't know, but if they do know, they were keeping it to themselves when I asked because I could get no details out of them. So I I don't know that we know what that looks like, uh, but we shall see. I will mention quickly that the speaker also today said to expect in the next year uh, increased state investment in job training in the community college system, uh, significant, I think, investment. He said, you know, and we said, absolutely. He said, no doubt about it. Expect that to be a, a priority for the legislature over the next year. Yeah, I was listening to an education oversight committee meeting this morning, and um, one of the things that they were discussing, um, not this morning, sorry, earlier this week, and one of the things they were discussing was the skills gap, you know, and, and, and the problem basically that we are going to need so many more trained workers to deal with all these great economic development projects that are coming here. Um, there was some discussion of that in Project Kitty Hawk, which is a, um, a, a funded um, effort to sort of unify online education, sort of provide a platform that all the UNC schools could use. Um, and there was actually some lawmakers who were, just, who were talking about whether or not this was going to cannibalize the community college's job training, you know, if they went into job training as well. Um, but, you know, it sounds like, you know, even, even though there was some skepticism about the project in general, it sounds like everybody is sort of on the same page in terms of 
we've got to do something because we're, we're, we're going to lose our edge if we don't have enough people to fill these positions. Yep. Workforce development is huge and the economy moves and changes fast. I got two other quick ones. Uh, Medicaid expansion. I talked to Senator uh, Ralph Heiss, Representative Jason Sane, and like I said, Speaker Morton uh, over the last couple of days. Don't expect anything on a Medicaid expansion before the elections. I think we probably have all come to expect that. Uh, but they've it, been pretty clear that they don't want to come back to town right now, you know, yeah, and that takes them off the campaign trail. It makes it so they can't they can't raise money. You know, this is not a great time to do that. Um, we did find a letter. Uh, we got a letter uh, from uh, Secretary Cody Kinsley to lawmakers and hospital executives sort of implying, if you read it the right way, uh, that the state could be losing hundreds of millions of dollars in signing bonus. So I wrote about that this week. You can find it on WRL.com on NC Capital. I will say that basically the signing bonus is going to be there kind of regardless of when lawmakers uh, go ahead and, 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 and approve the expansion. So it doesn't sound like we'll be missing out on that, but we definitely are missing out on, as, as you reported, up to about $500 million a month in money that could be coming from the feds to pay for Medicaid expansion. So. Yeah, those calculations according to DHHS, but obviously if there's a bunch of money on the table and it's a monthly amount because it's paying for people's claims in that given month, Every month you go without it is, is money you go without. Uh, the hospitals authority and the hospitals around the state, you know, their resistance to changing certificate of need laws, which regulate how they can and cannot expand, is a big sticking point. The Senate is insisting on that as part of a Medicaid expansion deal. Hospitals are like, nope. Uh, I The speaker was asked today if uh, hospitals have changed their position on that at all. His answer was, I don't know. Um, I'm going to go ahead and translate to that, that to, yeah, nah, it ain't, nah. It ain't changed. Um, uh, the speaker did say that overall, he's very optimistic that expansion gets done eventually. Eventually, keyword. Eventually. <clears throat> anyway, we should probably wrap this up, but thank okay. you. I, I got one more for you, one more. Okay. Ronnie Chatterjee, Democrat, ran for treasurer, what, two years ago at some point recently? He's now chief economist for the U.S. Department of Commerce. He was in town today for the Wolf Speed announcement at the governor's mansion. Uh, and I believe this announcement was supposed to come next week, but the governor kind of let the cat out of the bag a little bit early. He will be taking a lead role for the Biden White House on implementation <laughs> of the CHIPS Act. Uh, so that's a North Carolina guy who's going to be kind of uh, leading that, the, the implementation, the nuts and bolts uh, of that very big bill. I think that was 2020. That rings a bell. Yeah. It sounds right. Anyway, so next week, obviously, we're looking forward to more campaigns, more money, and, of course, more oversight meetings. So we'll keep you posted on all that here on The Wrap.